Welcome to Idle Chatter, brought to you by the Machinery Digest, where steel and soil meet. A weekly podcast by a New Jersey farmer to all farmers and ranchers across this great nation. And yes, there are farms in New Jersey. Regardless of the crop you grow or the livestock you raise, we all have one thing in common. Agriculture runs on passion, sweat, tears, and machinery. And that is why the Machinery Digest exists. A no-nonsense, grease-under-your-fingernails educational website. It was created to provide a transfer of knowledge so that you can maintain, service, and most importantly, understand today's complex farm equipment. My name is Ray Bohax and I farm too. It is time now to get under the sheet metal. Hello my friends and welcome to Idle Chatter. I'm Ray Bohax, your humble host, and I am coming to you, as I always say each week, from Catswamp Road in Warren County, New Jersey. So hopefully today is finding things going well for you. It's raining uh, here, and it's we had a couple of real nice days, and now it looks like we're going backwards a little bit. It's going to be, I think, uh, 36 degrees tomorrow night, and so that's not too good at this particular point. It's only about uh, 51 degrees right now as I'm recording this, so for anybody who has some seed in the ground, and I don't know of much seed in the ground in my neck of the woods, that uh, you don't have too many heat units coming there, buddy, so we'll see what happens. But I was able to get out into the field uh, yesterday, and I did spread off some gypsum, 21% uh, calcium palletized gypsum. I think it had 16% sulfur, and I wanted to uh, get my magnesium-calcium ratio and base saturation uh, tilted more towards the cal instead of the mag. And... uh, so I put 150 pounds per acre, as I said, down, and I spread that off yesterday. It was dry. The field was a little bit damp, but it was fine. I uh, don't think I did any, com- I didn't, I mean, didn't even stick to the tires, but my cover crop is still down, so I put, and that helped a lot. So I think coming this week, I'm going to have to uh, kill off at least one of the fields with my c- kill off the cover crop on that. And then hopefully, uh, God willing, maybe by the 10th of May, I could get some uh, seed in the ground. And since I do uh, fresh market sweet corn, we put like 10 plantings in. So if I start late, I leave, I end late, and then I do not uh, catch those uh, longer days and it becomes a problem. So I'm going to change some stuff around a little bit this year. I'm going to plant the field uh, in a di- not in a different direction, but I usually start my fields and I work myself over. So I start on the left-hand side and do a, do a planting and then wait till that pops up for four or five days and do another one and then do another one. So I'm going to go from right to left instead of from left to right this year. And the reason being is I have a tree line there and when the days get shorter that corn doesn't get that much sun or when I get over to the end plantings on each field so I'm going to have that plant that first so it gets the most sun and then also last year we had a lot of problems with coons and um, what I found with them 
is that if the corn is ripe by the wood line, by the woods, that they'll come in and start to eat it, and they'll know it's there, and then they'll work through each successive planting. Whereas, so I'm going to use the logic and try to outsmart them and have the area of the field that they would come into uh, be the youngest so that they will not see that there's any corn and hopefully they won't realize that on the other side of the field where there's no woods that there is uh, plenty of corn. So I'll let you know how that how that works out. Also uh, yesterday, just before I started to go into the field to uh, spread my gypsum, gypsum, I always pronounce it incorrectly, I received a delivery from Ford Motor Company of a gorgeous 2019 F-150 Super Crew Limited. So that is going to be, I'm excited, that's going to be the first of hopefully many vehicles that I road test for the Farm Machinery Digest and Idle Chatter podcast. And what I'm basically going to do I was thinking about it. I was originally going to integrate the road test of the vehicle. I'm going to have an actual magazine style article on the website for each vehicle I road test. And then I was going to do an overview of that uh, in my podcast, in my show. And then I realized that I, I couldn't do the vehicle justice or you the farmer justice discussing it by just putting a few minutes into the show and historically I'm, I go an hour on the show and I really don't want to push it much longer than that sometimes with the intro and the exit music it goes to be uh, an hour and one minute or an hour and two minutes and I don't think that you have much of a threshold to listen to me um, beyond that so what I said to myself I was thinking about it and I said geez you know why don't I just do a dedicated road test podcast for each vehicle that I get? So that's what we are going to do. And I'm excited about that. I'm going to put this truck tomorrow on going down to South of Jersey, to that neck of the woods. Uh, and my friend has a shop down there, Ida Automotive. And part of each road test is going to be a chassis dyno test. So this way we could see exactly how much power is getting to the wheels on each vehicle so uh we're gonna do a lot of testing it's going to be a very very uh for lack of better terms professional type of road test with instrumented numbers fuel economy and um, sound decibel readings but i'm also the whole purpose of this being that there's no place that people in agriculture could go to have a one of the appears road test a vehicle so if you look in the mainstream magazines, Motor Trend, Car and Driver, or they have some of these websites uh, and, you know, truck trends or something like that, and uh, they, they don't test the vehicle. They don't take the, They don't look at the vehicle through the eyes of somebody who's truly using it every day in an agricultural uh, venue. I mean, they look at it as a uh, basically a, a town guy or a city guy driving a pickup truck. And I'm not going to limit this just to pickup trucks. I'm going to also do vans, and I will also do vehicles that will uh, that the uh, the farm family would be using. For instance, like an SUV or sedan. And I'm going to look through it in the eyes through the eyes of a farmer. So if you have a sedan uh, or an SUV and it's very low slung for that aggressive look, that's really not going to get you down a pothole dirt road in Nebraska. So, uh, or if your wife wants to come visit you in the field and bring you some lunch, she's going to need some ground clearance there. So, 
I'm going to, it's going to be a little bit different, and uh, hopefully you guys like it, and bear with me, I'm going to have to tune it up and tweak it as we go along, but the F-150 Limited Super Crew, and what's interesting about that truck, it's a gorgeous truck, it's a, the window sticker is $74,000 on it, uh, but it has the Raptor engine, so it has the 450 horsepower Echo Boost versus a regular F-150 would have a 375 horsepower Echo Boost. So I'm really interested to see what she does. All I did was take it to town yesterday uh, to take my wife to the library, and then I wanted to get on the tractor and spread off some of that gypsum because it was supposed to rain later in the afternoon and I did uh, just catch a couple of raindrops as I was finishing and so that worked out pretty well, thank God. But the uh, the truck is gorgeous, a lot of buttons inside, let me tell you that. It looks like the space shuttle and I'm going to have to figure that all out before I leave at 5 o'clock in the morning to go down to South Jersey tomorrow. But what today's show is going to be about... You know, I, I was thinking about you know, all that flooding that happened and probably is still going on. You know, it seems that in today's world, things come and go out of the news cycle, and uh, there is always something to uh, to supplant what happened yesterday. And, you know, the world forgets about it, and I'm just as guilty as anyone else. And, you know, when something is in front of you, you think about it, and then as the next tragedy or event comes up, you forget all about it. But obviously those people that are living it uh, did not forget about it because it's in their day-to-day life. So what I started to think about is that the marketplace uh, is going to be is going to be flooded, no pun intended, with a lot of flood vehicles and as time goes on and you know the the marketplace I'll use that word because I don't want to you know you say insurance companies or or dealerships or what have you or unscrupulous business people but they take it you know they're they're willing to wait for their money so they take advantage of buying flood-damaged vehicles and equipment, and they know that people in a few months' time will forget all about that, and specifically if they move that vehicle or piece of equipment to a different geographic region of the country. So, for instance, let's say that somebody buys from an insurance company a flood, da- a flood pickup truck, what I mean by a a pickup truck that was in a flood, flood damage we'll call it, right? A flood damage pickup truck and they take that and then they ship it to upstate New York from Nebraska and it's three months after the flood or two months after the flood. The likelihood of someone from upstate New York or from North Carolina or from Maine or from Pennsylvania of associating that vehicle with the flood that happened two or three, four months prior to that is minimal. And they usually, the uh, those vehicles and that equipment are usually moved, as I said, to a different locale. And then the idea that it was flood damage, I mean, if you take a pickup truck like that and you send it to New Mexico, uh, people are not used to looking at flood damage there. So it is uh, something that we really need to be aware of. And so what I want to do is I want to dedicate today's show, and it's um, multi-purposeful. I want to talk about flood damage vehicles and equipment. And because, you know, specifically, 
on this talk, it makes no difference whether it's a, whether it's a combine or whether it's a pickup truck. That these because the farmer has everything. The farmer has a pickup truck. He has a he has a family car. He has a UTV. He has a sprayer. He has dedicated equipment, uh, farm tractor, what have you, and they're all all susceptible to flood damage if they've been underwater. So this talk today on my show is going to be broad-based, and then what I will do is I will break away into certain areas if it's application-specific, let's say to a car or to a tractor or what have you. But but generically, what I'm going to talk about will usually apply to everything, so any type of vehicle or machine that would have been underwater. Now, there you know there is a blessing as far as the floods are concerned out in the Midwest and it's uh, and I just mean that as far as the vehicles are concerned is that because it was not salt water salt water is very very corrosive as you would know so any time that something is flooded with seawater as they had down in Louisiana years ago with Hurricane Katrina or they have in Florida lots of times where the sea comes inland and floods everything and then the water recedes back out but everything is covered with salt water is that that's much more damaging it's it's much more of an issue than the fresh water flooding that we had in the corn belt of the United States they're both not good but sea water is definitely much more destructive so we could, I guess, in a small way, we could count our blessings that it was freshwater flooding and not and not sea not and not seawater flooding. So, what I think would be the most prudent thing for me to do is to probably break this down, this show into two uh, distinct categories, and the first category being how you should deal with or think of or look at because it's all basically comes into that one same fold of equipment that you already own that has been underwater to a certain extent and then the second part as I get near to uh, to closing the show today before we do our special delivery segment the second part of the show I will talk about what to look for when you are purchasing used equipment and with today there's such a proliferation of purchases made uh, through the internet and also through auctions and when you go to an auction in some instances uh, you may not know the history of that piece of equipment if it was brought to the auction site uh, by somebody that was uh, like I say from a different state and you really need to be aware of those specifically moving forward because um, you could pay a lot of you could pay very good money for a piece of equipment that was submerged underwater and some cleanup work and some tell some other things and uh, you know you think you're getting a good bargain and obviously it is most likely not going to be represented as a flood claimed vehicle or machine and uh, so we need to be able to and there are telltale signs and of that and we will discuss that as the show progresses but the first thing that I would say to you is that if you had any of your equipment go underwater and the water now is receded and depending upon the insurance coverage you had and the equipment obviously uh, it may be replacement value maybe it may it may not even be insured or it may or the insurance company may say that they're not going to replace it or what have you so 
those those areas are really uh, sketchy and it, from what I could glean is that a, a lot of people are not going to get the, uh, the the good end of the stick on this particular deal but let's just look at it as far as the machinery is concerned the first thing that you need to uh, realize is that the that a piece of machinery and a modern piece of machinery has an engine a transmission a hydraulic system and electronics and, and along with other subsystems for instance like the air conditioner the heater uh, the radio would be electronic the interior of the of the uh, piece of equipment or the vehicle now obviously the most susceptible part of that the most susceptible area for damage is a modern piece of equipment with a lot of electronics in it and uh, as the equipment goes gets older and you have an older piece of equipment it's a lot more forgiving of being underwater because it's more mechanical instead of instead of electrical so what needs to happen is that you need to be able to try to quantify which pieces of equipment were in the water and how deep that water level was so let's say arguably you have a combine and the water level got just up to let's say halfway up to the front wheels and then you probably had some hydraulic motors maybe some drives underneath or the header itself was underwater but the majority of that piece of equipment really did not see anything uh see any moisture other than the rainfall because the engine is up high the cab is up high and what have you now let's say you had a pickup truck parked right next to it a two-wheel drive pickup truck now with that particular that particular vehicle may have actually seen the water come near the top of the hood so that's going to be a whole different animal so the first thing you need to do in your mind is you need to be able to identify how deep the water was that each piece of equipment was exposed to and then we could look at it from that way and our approach is going to be based upon that now if there is any possibility that water got into the engine the most important thing is do not try to start it and also keep in mind that in most instances not every instances more of the damage flood damage is done as the water recedes than when that piece of equipment is underwater because as the water recedes we're exposing a lot of oxygen to that moisture and with the oxygen and the moisture it has it, it is the the uh, the fertile ground to create rust and corrosion whereas when it's completely underwater and submerged and has no oxygen the amount of of rust or corrosion would be very minimal so to, and in almost every instance so if that this piece of equipment when the water receded sat there for quite some time and the water that was inside or inside the engine or the transmission or the electronics had to slowly evaporate out and be exposed to water in theory and this is in theory if you were to submerge something and then take it take it completely out of water let's say you submerge an engine that took completely out of the water and immediately started to eradicate all the moisture from it the cylinders the uh, crankcase the the, uh, the fuel system then you would have minimal to no damage so the longer that it sat 
drying out, for lack of terms, is where the majority of damage took place. But to get back on course here, what you really want to do is you do not you do not want to crank that engine over. If there's any suspicion of that engine had ingested some water, and you do not want to turn that starter, that key, and have that starter crank because you don't want to expose the hydraulic action of a cylinder filled with water uh, to be compressed because, as you know, water, like any fluid, is, is, is uncompressible, and you don't want to lock that engine up, and also you don't want to move that water around. So the first thing for you to do is you want to pull a dipstick on that uh, engine and you want to see if anything looks funny. Does it look murky? Does it look white? Does it, uh, is it very high? And regard, and that's your first step. Very easy to do and you want to look at all of the fluids, the transmission, hydraulic, power steering, what have you, depending upon the application so obviously you would have you would be checking different things on a combine than you would on a pickup truck but ultimately you want to be able to look at any of the fluids and see if there's any telltale signs of of water in it and if there if there are any telltale signs of water then you need to drain that fluid out and you need to drain it out and you need to change the filters to get that out of there and then what i would also like for you to do is while that fluid is being drained and the crankcase is empty uh, I want you on a gasoline motor to pull the spark plugs and on a diesel engine it's a little bit harder to pull the injectors out but you want to be able to try to crank that engine over by hand with some sort of wrench on a big diesel it's harder but crank that engine over by hand and see if you're going to push any water out of those cylinders so at this particular point we have no oil in it you're not going to hurt anything cranking it over by hand with no with no oil in it and you want to push the uh, water out of the cylinders through either the spark plug holes or the injector holes depending upon the actual design another good thing for you to do is to invest a few hundred dollars and i know it's hard to invest more money when you lost so much during these floods and i hope that you could you hear the solemnness in my voice because this is um, this is like a rescue mission. This is not a, uh, a a show that I'm enjoying doing because this this is trying to minimize your loss after a catastrophic, horrific event. And it's not usually what I talk about. I talk about about you know trying to just make your farm more efficient as far as your equipment is concerned, not trying to rescue something. So. You can make a minimal investment of a few hundred dollars and get yourself a bore scope, inspection scope, and then you could go in through the spark plug holes, the injector holes, the dipstick hole, what have you, and look around and see if you see anything of any any rust forming or what have you. Any uh, you'll be surprised. You'll have a, you could have some uh, algae forming in there, believe it or not, and uh, or some some uh, mold forming depending upon the application and whether it got any oxygen and whether it was exposed to a lot of sun load afterwards. So you really want to just look look around in there and see what the, see what the story is. Uh, once you are confident 
that you have you have that you got all of the moisture out if there wasn't any, if there was even moisture now keep in mind even with something like a pickup truck that today's engines are very very well sealed and if it's a newer engine and it's obviously fuel injected and the throttle body is up high you could conceivably put that engine underwater up into the valve covers or uh and the dipstick tube the top of the dip dipstick tube can't get my tongue back in my mouth and put no water put really put no moisture into that into that that crankcase or into those cylinders so in an older engine uh with open breathers uh probably not sealed as well as it uh as modern engines are and it sat under water for a long time then you would probably have some migration of that into the engine so don't think the worst thing you could do is think because it was underwater or partially underwater that's junk and that often is not the case so and specifically with fresh water flooding versus sea versus sea water flooding and so once you crank this engine over by hand and you feel confident that it that it feels that it feels good uh when you're cranking it over you don't feel any binding or what have you then you uh, would put oil back in it obviously put the spark plugs or the uh injectors back in and you could then give it a whirl with the starter and you may be surprised she starts but the thing also uh, i really should back up is that there's a very good possibility that uh you may have gotten some water into the fuel so before you do start that i really should have said you have to examine what's happening in the fuel tank and uh, then again on a modern vehicle though we complain about their complexity because of hydrocarbon emissions evaporative emissions that the gas tanks on a gasoline engine are sealed very very well so uh they don't have the open vent breathers like we had years ago so the thing is that it's very possible that you did not get much water or any water at all in the gasoline but then again you know you make that decision you may want to drain the gas out uh that gets to be a a little bit of a hassle if you have a lot of vehicles or engines that you're trying to save you then again you you know sore subject you may want to make a little bit of investment and get uh they sell i think they call them like gas buddies they almost look like an air conditioner charging station and you could put a tube from the gas from the fuel tank fill it down into the tank and you could suck out all of the old fuel and you suck out the water with it also and then you could inspect it in a glass jar and see if it separates and if it is fine it doesn't have any moisture in it then obviously you could put that back in and that would work for gas or diesel they are um, quite costly as far as uh, i mean they're not a million dollars i mean a good one may be a thousand dollars or so but it is a tool that you could use moving forward uh after you recuperate from uh this flooding it's always good to have in the shop you got to pull a, a, a fuel tank out for some reason you could suck the fuel out of it you have to pull a, a something with a hydraulic pump you could suck the flu the, the fuel the fluid out of it not the fuel so so in essence we're going to have to look at each engine each piece of machinery on a case by case example but once you feel that there's no water in the engine you have fresh oil in it there's no water in the cylinders and there's no water in the fuel uh then i would give it a whirl because at this particular point you have nothing nothing to lose so i would give it a whirl and you may be very well surprised that she may start and run as if nothing ever happened to it so that is and hopefully that is the case now stepping back again 
probably the most problems you would have with a modern engine, be it gasoline or diesel, is not with the physical components of the engine having been submerged, but the electronics. And as we all know, that electronics you do not like to get wet or be underwater. But keep you know, keep in mind again, is that if you know, if you got if you got 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 the water out of it, the moisture out of it, and it didn't sit too long, then corrosion and other things would not. Uh, have the ability to take a foothold in it, and that is a positive thing. But now, with the electronics, what you're going to find is that you'll have some sort of controller and ECU on, and then you'll have a wiring harness and you'll have the sensors. Um, again, you cannot foretell what you think may have gone bad has not and what you think was benign to being underwater may have failed so the alternator being underwater believe it or not will probably not have too adverse of an effect to it because all of the elect or the the um the diodes are potted and the uh, if it has internal voltage regulator that's all potted and other than having some corrosion possibly form on the connections that it would probably be alright but keep in mind that a lot of these parts are like the alternator they have bearings in them so even though the, the uh, electrical part of the alternator may be fine once it dries out the bearing does not like to be underwater and then once you start to spin that, then you start to have a bearing failure. So, and also keep in mind with uh, underneath the piece of equipment, all of those bearings being underwater may or may not have been affected. But those really are not major issues. It's probably what submarines, no pun intended, a piece of a flood equipment is usually not the engine, the transmission, and it's usually on a more modern piece of equipment is the electronics. But we're going to delve into that a little bit more in a couple of minutes. But I'd like to finish up on the drive line. Same thing with the transmission, be it a manual, be it a hydrostatic, or be it a fully automatic. On uh, depending upon the application, you want to, a lot of these transmissions. They don't even have dipsticks, so you want to. And that is good in a way because the only way the water probably would have gotten in would have been through the vent pipe. But you still want to drain that fluid and change the filter and then take a look inside and most likely you know <clears throat> keep in mind that anything that was that works through a, a petroleum-based product uh, motor oil hydraulic fluid transmission fluid those oils are a natural anti-rust or anti-corrosion uh, protector so if the engine is bathed bathed in oil inside and it still had some oil clinging to it that's going to act as a protectant against uh, the water coming in and impacting it it's not going to be a hundred percent but it's definitely definitely a protector so anything that is running in some sort of oil based product is going to probably be less prone to any damage than something like a cylinder wall that really has no oil on it and there's a term with oil that's called wet ability and that means how long that the oil clings to a part when the piece of equipment specifically it's used for engine oil so when you were to shut the engine any engine off that oil is going to start to drain back from all of the internal parts that it comes in contact with and the oil's ability to stick to that part and or, or drain back slower not 
uh, keep a coating on it is called its wet ability. And uh, contrary to what somebody may think, is that synthetic oils have a lower degree of wettability than mineral oils. They slide off the parts quicker. So when you shut an engine off that has synthetic oil in it, those parts actually shed the oil much quicker because of the composition of the synthetic oil and leave them more to be exposed to to moisture and to the atmosphere and the negative aspects of that and that's why I do not as an aside again to this I do not recommend people to use I love synthetic oils but they are the low level of wettability for, uh, for an engine that's not going to be run too often or collect a car or collect a tractor or a piece of equipment that you only use um, you know one or two days three days out of the year you're probably better off with a minimal mineral based oil or a semi-synthetic which is a mineral synthetic blend because it has a higher degree of wettability and those it, that oil will cling to those parts for a longer period of time before it completely comes off and allows the uh the ravages of nature humidity to get in there and to uh, start to impact them so <clears throat> if you have uh if you have engines that were running synthetic oil in them, they may be uh, have a little bit more or need a little bit more inspection than the others. We'll leave it at that. Uh, you know, this is such a broad-based topic. You know, please forgive me, and I don't seem to have, to, I don't feel I have the continuity in this show that I want to, because I want to try to bring it all together and try to give you some. Uh, you know, some pointers to look at and oh you know you know and, uh, right now i'll say please you know feel free to contact me at hot rod farmer at farm com, and if you have any questions that i did not cover here so your know, transmission manual transmission same thing uh if basically in essence if it didn't if it didn't take a long time for it to uh dry out and be damp for a long time then uh you probably have no damage or minimal to probably no no quantifiable damage you could drain the fluid on it and then you could run it and get it hot so it boils off any other residual humidity inside the transmission case and then you will be fine and the same thing is with the differentials that you may uh, find that they're going to be very very forgiving of anything that uh, any introduction of water as long as you don't let it sit in there for six months and you know likewise with hydraulic motors that are drive motors on some pieces of farm equipment uh now there are other things that you need to think about let's say like a universal joint or a constant velocity joint on a uh on a tractor or a pickup truck or a car that they're not going to like to be sit- sitting under water for a long period of time but you know if you need to put a u joint or a constant velocity joint in something and that's not certainly not the end of the world it's not thirty thousand dollars like a big diesel engine going into a, a farm tractor or a combine so we can certainly live with this but also you know, keep in mind that i don't, I don't want to downplay this that you can be able to take this this piece of machinery or this pickup truck that was underneath water for two weeks and then just drain the oil and do some stuff to it not have any any failures down the road and historically when something like this happens uh, you may ha- it may run fine for instance like a universal joint and then after 100 200 300 thousand miles what have you the joint starts to fail or the wheel bearing starts to fail or the alternator starts to fail or the power steering pump starts to fail because of it now had some use in its degraded condition 
but to me that's none of that is a deal breaker because you could fix that very easily and hopefully it doesn't happen at an inopportune time when you need that vehicle or that piece of equipment but now when it comes to electronics and wiring that's a whole different ball game and if you have a lot of electronics that have been underwater it's it's basically going to be a crapshoot whether it's going to be affected or not and then the level of its effect and but predominantly what you need to realize is that when the moisture will actually the water will actually sneak in at the connector to the electronic part whether it's a sensor whether it's an ecu a computer an auto guidance system and believe it or not it will start to through almost like a capillary action i don't know if it's truly a capillary action but almost like a capillary action and you're keeping it underwater that that water will actually work from that connection that pin that goes into that piece of electronics the uh the the terminal and go up in and work itself up into that wiring harness now keep in mind it is not going to work itself three feet up into the wiring harness all right so it'll probably work itself up maybe a quarter to a half inch into the wiring harness and uh from that point on it will have be a hundred percent fine now you know the decision needs to be made between you and your insurance company if you have insurance and you know the best case scenario would be for them to pay you off enough money that you could buy a new piece of equipment all right or almost a new piece or almost pay you enough to buy a new piece of equipment and you go into your pocket for the rest but if that is not the case and you want to try to salvage this piece of equipment then as far as the wiring harness is concerned there and this is where you're going to have to do a lot of research but basically uh let's talk about f- dedicated farm equipment first not vehicles but almost every connector that is used on a modern wiring harness on a uh, tier 4 engine or a uh, auto guidance system or what have you has its roots in the auto industry because the auto industry was the first ones to bring microprocessor controls to vehicles and to engines and a lot of those connectors are probably every type of connector that you would see has its roots in the auto industry and it's usually if it says PED on it capital P capital E capital D sometimes they'll have a period between it which is PD PED that's what's called a Packard style connector and that is a connector that was actually designed and invented by the Packard electrical wiring division of General Motors and so and everybody today uses a PED style connector and that connector actually had a plastic housing it had a pin terminal that went into uh that went into it usually was a a male that went into a female but it could be the other way around depending upon the design but historically the wiring harness had the male on it and then it had what they call a weather pack which was a rubber boot behind it and you need a special tool to release that connector from that plastic or the wire from that plastic connector now in almost every instance and the internet is great for this uh you could find companies that actually sell those connectors and those ends now most factory wiring harnesses in most applications have a little bit of extra length to them so if you were so inclined 
that you could probably remove those violated from the moisture connectors, cut them off. You have to buy a Packard-style crimping tool. It's a special tool and the Packard connectors, but this is all readily available, and you could and do it one wire at a time and pin that back out. Now, the thing is that I'm not going to deny that this is a labor of love, and this is often very physically challenging due to the contortions that you would need to make to be able to reach those connectors and cut them off and put new connectors and and the reason why you're cutting them off is because as i said you'll have corrosion that'll get in in the first sixteenth of an inch eighth of an inch of the wire and beyond that the wire is totally unviolated so by cutting off that end and putting a new connector on there and the only reason why you're putting a new physical pin pin connector on it is uh, because once those are crimped you can't take them off and remove them so they need to be cut off so it's a one-time use pin on all of those electronic wiring it's not that you could unsolder it or open up uh, it's a crimp it's a crimp and some of them may have a bit of solder on them, but usually they're just a very defined crimp from a from a dedicated crimping tool so that is something you could look at uh, in some applications, specifically more automotive, I know Ford Motor Company is excellent for this. Uh, the thing is finding a dealer that knows how to look it up in a book. They would actually sell you pigtails that had maybe six or eight inches of wire on it. They would already be pinned out for that application so the wire colors would be correct, the pin locations would be correct to go into that control unit, whether it's an engine controller, ABS controller, or what have you. And it would uh and you'd be able to cut the the the, the uh, pigtail off and then just go color to color and then solder the uh pigtail onto the factory wiring harness that was underwater then affected and then shrink tube that and you should be golden as far as that wiring harness is concerned in some applications you may be able to buy a new wiring harness but then i just want to then again i want to say is that the wiring harness itself uh you could stick those under the ocean and it's the the ends where it connects into something is where the moisture forms not in the middle of the wire and unless that harness was violated for some particular reason you know had a had a chamf a little hole in it from rubbing against something that that wire is benign it doesn't care that it's underwater already so that's that and you may like and you may also look into new wiring harness so you could uh sometimes I mean, new wiring, I shouldn't say sometimes, new wiring harnesses are available. But, you know, it has to be a business decision for you. And all I want to do is give you the technical aspects of this. And on a vehicle that has hydraulic brakes, if you think that the... Uh, if the water got up to the wheels or to the wheel wells, then you're basically... Then again, that system is sealed. So you really should not have integrate, had any water integrate the brake fluid, but that's easy enough to change on a hydraulic braking system. But then again, keep in mind that those wheel bearings run the water, and that caliper or those brake shoes were all underwater. And the worst case scenario at that particular point, you would need to take that off and you'll polish them back up the slides and the calipers the backing plate on the brake shoes the cable whatever and lubricate it and you would be good to go that would be golden and uh you know we keep coming back to the same thing 
at what particular point does this become a restoration and are you in the restoration business or you are in the farming business are you in the restoration business or you are or are you in the uh the ranching business so you know everything can be fixed there's nothing there's nothing mechanical in life that cannot be fixed it's just a matter of how much effort how much time and how much resources that you want to put into it so you know the insurance company is going to want to try to get it as cheap as possible or give you next to nothing but that piece of equipment was worth a lot to you because it was running your farm and you know so you know always always use that balance of is it better for me to get rid of this thing if you're like me i hate to say goodbye to things i fall in love with them they become part of me uh even if i buy something new i keep the old one which is kind of crazy but a lot of us farmers do that and you keep the old one because it's still good and uh you feel guilty about uh, giving it up and i know all of that but these decisions need to be made on a case-by-case basis but i do want to say to you that the electronics has the prop has the potential to be the most problematic and the most costly to repair so uh you know keep that in mind and also keep in mind that as you go down the road no pun intended you could have something that works fine let's say you had a uh, auto steer system or a monitor or something in the cab what have you something electronics electronically operated and then a couple of months from now or down the road it starts to act up or just do funny things or intermittent things then what i would basically do is look at the ground circuits you know and i i preach ground circuits because i they're, they're so important on electrical systems whether it's just a, a, a starter motor a cranking motor on an old mechanical diesel or gasoline engine or a 2019 piece of equipment with every electronic bell and whistle is that the ground circuits are so important and what would happen is that over time because that ground circuit was damp and wet and as i said most of the damage occurs as it is drying because it's exposed to heat and a high level of ox- high oxygen content that that ground will be corroded so if you do have a piece of equipment that was flooded you got it up and running it's been running fine and then down the road it starts to do something funny electrically uh then the first place i would go is try to identify where the grounds are for that and uh look at those grounds because you could have a lot of corrosion under that ground and also you could have corrosion from the eyelet or the connection on that ground up a 16th an eighth of an inch a 32nd of an inch just into that wire because remember is that if you have that eyelet that goes onto those wires if you have corrosion just a a, a minute two a minute way up from that eyelet that that's just as good as being corroded the whole way because that is the that's the blockage for the electrons to get the ground that's like having a plug sink it makes no difference whether the sink is plugged two inches down into the trap or three feet after the trap it's still plugged and it's not letting the water go down so the thing is that you know keep always keep that in mind that if a problem pops up down the road and it's electrical and it was a flood vehicle or flood engine or flood piece of equipment that you need to identify those grounds in a quick and easy way obviously you could take them off and study them but the quick and easy way would be depending upon where the corrosion is for you to put a jumper wire to a ground someplace else and see if the system improves now keep in mind as i said a second ago that if there is corrosion on the inlet or just a small minute 
mount back into the wiring harness, then running an external ground jumper is going to prove nothing because the corrosion is is before that. So we have uh, so in essence, basically to recap here before we move on to purchasing a used piece of equipment is that we have uh, the engines. We want to look in there with it. We want to determine easily whether there is any water in there, drain the fluids, drain the oil on everything. All right. If you feel that you want to look in there with a bore scope, if it's uh, easy enough to do, if it's a nightmare like on a big diesel, you may want to pass on that. But you do want to make sure you don't. The take home message here is that you don't want to turn that engine over with any moisture in it, any water, any oil, or in the cylinders, because that is going to cause more problems than the flood. That that's be like riding, like getting a flat tire on a car, and instead of just stopping and changing the tire, you keep on riding, driving, and then the tire comes apart, you ruin the rim, that the tire hits the fender and dents it and what have you. So you don't want to crank the engine over, right? You want to, you want to check that as far as the... Uh, drive line is concerned you want to look for basically a drain and fill is probably all you really need on a differential or a hydraulic system or what have you and it'll probably be very 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 forgiving uh because as i said it's not salt water so it doesn't have that corrosive nature that uh that you'll be seeing with ocean flooding and <clears throat> and then also you want to uh you make a mental note of how deep the water got in each piece of equipment. So if it was way below anything of, of consequence, then, I'll, then probably other than a wheel bearing or something like that being exposed to it, you're, you're, you're good to go. And you know, keep in mind also that depending upon your insurance policy, and I may be talking out of context here because that's not my expertise, but lots of times they'll pay you for the vehicle or the piece of equipment and then you could buy it back. So a salvage value. So it may behoove you to to get paid for the piece of equipment, buy buy a newer or brand new piece of equipment to put back into the field, and then buy this back for five cents on the dollar because it'd be just a salvage value. And if it's, uh, they would probably mark the title salvage value, but I really don't know if they do that on on machinery on a vehicle. They would call it a salvage title on a road vehicle, but I don't know whether they would do that on a combine or not. And that may actually be state specific. So even if you're getting all new equipment because your policy is going to cover it, then you still want to keep this in mind that you may want to, you know, as over time, fix that piece of equipment back up and then use it as a backup or, or use it on a farm for whatever. I mean, second combine, right? Who can't want that? So that's basically that. Uh, electronics, you want to be probably... Uh, if the ECU, some kind of control unit, goes goes bad from being underwater, then that's obviously going to need to be replaced. But uh, that's a simple plug-and-play. But historically, the wiring harness and the connections at the wiring harness and the grounds are where your problem is going to be. The rest of the wire is completely benign to being underwater. Could care less. And uh, it's only at the ends where you would have a problem and at the controller. And then again, you know, you have a lot of sensors. So uh, were they underwater? Well, who, like I say, at that particular point, you know, it has to be your business decision and your call. So and don't forget about simple things like constant velocity joints, wheel bearings, uh, chains, let's say uh, chain drives on a combine or into a header or something like that. But I think that you will find... Uh, 
that a lot of this stuff is is uh, much more forgiving than you may have first thought and hopefully you didn't get too much of the the electronics as I said is the least forgiving but it doesn't mean that they don't forgive at all once they get dried out so if you have like a potted circuit board and the good thing about agricultural electronics is they're usually very well potted due to vibration if you have a potted circuit board and that all dries out and you don't turn the key on it doesn't short two circuits together to pop like a transistor there's a very good chance it's not gonna have any issue I mean, because uh, if it's all potted and it's uh, has a lot of, and if the ECU itself is potted, you may not have even gotten any moisture, and you may just have some corrosion at the pins. So, uh, you know, like I say, don't jump, don't jump the gun on it. I wouldn't be. Uh, obviously, this is a lot of work and effort that you wouldn't normally have to have had if the floods didn't come. But in some ways, you may be pleasantly surprised. But what I'd like to talk about, as I said that's your equipment and what I think that you need to do with you know with with so many people buying equipment over the internet as I said before and going to these auctions you know and don't feel safe because you live in you live in Arizona and the floods happened happened in Nebraska as I said you know this industry is known for shipping equipment to different parts of the country to a different to a different area because the people will not associate that with the uh, the floods or the hurricanes or whatever would have happened and that yeah, we had bad flooding here in New Jersey with uh, I forgot what the hurricane was uh, I should have known we lost power for six days uh, well it wasn't Katrina I forgot what it was called Katrina was down south but anyway it was some woman's name but uh, a lot of cars brand new cars were completely under seawater and they took those cars and you know they people unscrupulous people bought them they bought them with salvage titles and they retitled them uh, through trickery and they retitled them through trickery and brought them to another state far away from where the seawater was and they sold those and those vehicles have been usually have been very problematic because a car so and a la pickup truck has airbags has a whole bunch of stuff in it is a lot more complicated than even the most complicated piece of farm equipment so if you're going to an auction and most farmers don't buy pickup trucks or cars at an auction, they buy larger farm equipment. What you need to do is look, to obviously, do your due diligence, see if you could find out as much about that piece of equipment as possible. And then what I also suggest for people to do, if you can't find out too much about it, if you're in Alabama and you see, you know, most people who get ready to try to move this damaged equipment or flood equipment are lazy. And you and you know that's how the criminals get caught, right? Because they're lazy. They think no one's paying attention. And I'm not calling them criminal, but you know if you have a uh, you're in Alabama, and you're seeing this beautiful combine come through auction, uh, low hour combine, uh, really nice shape and shiny paint and what have you, and it was bought at a dealer in Nebraska or South Dakota, and then you know, you may be a little more suspicious. You should be a little bit more suspicious of that if it's timetable. Uh, fits in when the flooding occurred so you so look for that look for if it if it had if the flood had the potential uh combine would probably be hard to get that the cab underwater but not impossible uh, depending upon where it was parked when the flood waters rose but you look for telltale signs for instance like in the cab a lot of must musty smell 
or sometimes look for a completely new interior. So it would be like having an old pair of shoes, not a not a shot pair of shoes, but a pair of shoes with some some walking on them and brand new shoelaces. So if you see that there's you know this thing, wow, it's got a brand new seat, it's got a brand new carpet in it, this pickup truck's got a brand new carpet in it, and uh, then that may be very well be a telltale sign that that was flooded and they ripped that out and put a new carpet in it or a new seat in it, what have you. So that's a telltale sign. Look also visually study the piece of equipment for any high watermark or you know an area that seems to have rust or corrosion that normally would not be rusty or corroded so uh if you look up underneath it if you look like into the feeder sorry i hit the microphone into the feeder house uh and you see geez you know that usually doesn't have any moisture there or any rust there you know you could be you got to play sherlock holmes because there usually will be telltale signs of this and uh, of it being flooded and then you know tr- try to stick your head around there and look to see whether uh there is a uh, any of the grounds lots of times you can't see them but lots of times you can you'd be surprised what you could find if you just spend five minutes looking and they look extremely rusty so like i say not to use the same words again there are telltale signs if you want to be a detective that it's been underwater uh if you also <coughs> find that the fluids most people when they sell something or trade it in or send it to auction are not really good about changing the fluids so now some people are but a lot of them aren't so the thing is that what you want to basically do is you want to look to see geez you mean this guy sent this to auction and he just put all new fluids in it and he put uh and it has a dealer service tag with all new fluids on it or somebody's service tag we could see the oil looks brand new everything looks brand new i mean if there's no service tag you pull a dipstick man this oil looks like it's got five minutes running on it this hydraulic fluid looks like it's got five minutes running on it i mean those are little things that should perk perk your ears up but the most but the best thing to do is if you're going to buy something from auction is that if if the auction house can tell you where it originated from and who owned it then i obviously that eliminates a lot of guesswork because if you said well you know you're you're in uh, indiana and this was an indiana combine and there was no no flooding in indiana then you obviously don't have to be concerned with that but a little bit of sherlock holmes connecting a little a few of the dots and and my contention is that if it does give you an indication of being uh possibly uh, you say hey you know i don't know there's some things about here that i don't like i don't like these new rugs on the floor and i don't like this and i don't like that and i don't like that it's got a new radio in it the radio doesn't fit the dashboard properly and it's not a john deere radio or not a case radio and it's a aftermarket radio and i know these came with john deere face plates on them so i would probably be suspicious of that and i would sadly walk away from it uh because you don't want to buy a pig in a polk and you could uh, just have a nightmare and it could actually drive you out of business so listen i uh that's really you know do do some investigating check out your own stuff if it's been underwater and as i said before please feel free to contact me at hot rod farmer at farmmachinerydigest.com
And now I would like to go to our special delivery. And I'm proud to say to you, now I'm happy because I really was bothering me talking about all of that uh, damage that was done to so many farmers. So, but special delivery is brought to you by Har- by Firestone Ag. I was going to say Harvey Firestone, but Firestone Ag is a company that was founded by Harvey Firestone, and he was the fourth generation farmer from Columbiana, Ohio. Harvey dreamed of putting rubber tires on farm tractors, and his innovative mindset is the core of Firestone Ag today. And it lives on with their 23-degree tread bar, AD2 technology tires, low low uh, pressure tires, minimal uh, soil compaction, and now their new Firestone, the Firestone of replacement tracks for people with track machines. The soil is the lifeblood of your farm. Trust it only to Firestone. Well, we have a letter here that came in, and uh, from a gentleman in South Africa. And he says he has a 1975 Dodge D600 rack body truck with a 413 V8. That's a 75, nice truck, and a manual transmission. He said that one of the workers changed the universal joints. And ever since then, the truck seems to have a vibration, a harmonic, he didn't say harmonic, a vibration at higher speeds. And it's also felt a little bit during acceleration, deacceleration, but basically around what would be the equivalent of 50 miles an hour it starts. And he wanted to know whether I have any ideas about that. I would say, yes, I do. Uh... If you took the, if it had no vibration before you took the drive shaft out and it had it afterwards, then either one of two things happened. When the, whenever you pull a drive shaft out of everything, ma- mark with a paint stick, a paint pen, the yoke position to the shaft, and then the then the drive shaft's position to the yoke in the differential. And if it has, usually they don't have a yoke in the front of the transmission. Usually it slides in. But if it has, if it has, or if it's a two-piece drive shaft, if you mark everything and you put it back in the same spot with the new universal joints, you will have no vibration. Simply put, when you guys change those universal joints, you got that drive shaft out of phase or in the wrong clock position, and that is why it is vibrating. So there's no other reason for it. You didn't change the pinion angle or the transmission angle. And what you may want to do is re- mark that drive shaft now and change the location, turn it turn it, uh, you know, 90 degrees and see what happens. But before you do that, make sure that the, that the rear yoke is not out of phase with the front yoke. Because if you put that in wrong, it will go right in, but you would see that the yokes are out of phase. In other words, the one part of the yoke, you should be able to look at that drive shaft, and however the yoke is on the front, the yoke should be at the same clock angle on the back. And if it's in the wrong clock angle, uh, and doesn't match that in the front, and I'm saying the front because uh, that yoke doesn't come off usually, usually as the rear, that you will uh, put that out of phase and you will have a vibration. So look at that first. If that doesn't work, then what I would do is mark the drive shaft with a paint pen, turn it 90 degrees, recheck, take, turn it 90 degrees again, recheck, and then go from there and you will eventually get it back in. It's nothing more complicated than that. So listen, I want to thank you so much. 
again for listening to my listen i'm saying listen twice thank you so much for listening to my show and i greatly appreciate it and if i can help you in any way never hesitate to contact me and i'm sorry that so many people uh in those flooded areas have to deal with this and i hope that i was of little bit of help to you and please know that you're all farmers are in my prayers farmers and ranchers in agriculture know that the hot rod farmer is pulling for you the american farmer and rancher and my beloved america i will talk to you again next week bye bye